In the uh, movie, one of my favorite movies, I've mentioned it here before, so I'm going to bring it up again, uh, the movie uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, who's seen it? Raise your hand. We can admit we see this is a film. Okay, good. Now I don't feel bad like I'm the only one who's seen it. Edmund escapes from prison, the Chateau d'If, bad prison, you don't want to stay there. He escapes from prison, finds himself washed up on a beach. He's excited to be free, obviously, from Chateau d'If. It was a torturous existence there. But on the beach, he runs into a band of bandits or pirates. So he escapes from prison only to fall into the hands of a group of bandits who then capture him and secure him. And these bandits have a problem. One of the members of their group, one of the members of the bandits, has committed treachery, and they're going to kill him. But some of the guys like Jacopo. We love Jacopo. And so the the leader of the bandits is in a bit of a quandary. He's like, he needs to die. What what am I going to do? Let guys just commit treachery? No, we can't do this. He needs to die. But if I kill him, there's a number of guys who are going to be really disappointed about that. And so he says, so you have provided us some good fortune. What I'm going to do is give you each a knife, and you'll have a knife fight, and the survivor will join the bandits, and the dead one will not. That seems agreeable to the Count of Moscow, to Edmund, anyway. And then the bandit tells him, just so you know, Jacopo is the best knife fighter I have ever seen. And Edmund says, maybe you should get out more. So he has to fight Jacopo, and the winner, the survivor, will get to stay with the bandits, and the one who was killed will not. So the, the fight ensues, and guys, you've got to see this fight, great knife fight. Um, Finally, Edmund gets the upper hand and has Jacopo on his back on the sand with a knife to his throat, and Edmund spares him. He turns to the leader of the bandits and says, listen, the ones who wanted justice got justice, the one who wanted some, en- some entertainment got their entertainment, and now if we let Jacopo live, you will also be seen as merciful. And the leader of the bandits agrees And the whole point of this story is what Jacopo says to Edmund. He says this, I swear by my dead relatives, and even by the ones who aren't feeling too good, (laughs) I am your man forever. I am your man forever. He received from Edmund, the Count of Monte Cristo, Grace, mercy, his life, his response to having been received and uh, offered grace and mercy was what you would expect, isn't it? I'm your man forever. And sure enough, Jacopo stays by his side throughout his vengeful journey. You'll have to see the movie to see how it ends. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 is only conceivable, is only understandable if we as Christians, the ones reading it, see ourselves as Jacopo on the ground, on our back, death on our throat, and Jesus saves us. It's simply a very brief and powerful description of what it looks like to be His man, Jesus' man and woman forever. It's quite simply the expected normal response for those who have been saved from certain death. Now, I would suggest, if you haven't been saved from certain death, this passage can read like it's a little overbearing. 
It's a little bit much, actually. When we were reading it, some of you probably squirmed a bit. When we squirm at a passage like 1 John 3, verses 1 through 10, it's because we don't really see ourselves as Jacopo, dead where we sit. We see ourselves as mostly dead, but for the most part, okay. So the title of the message today, and we're going to just cover very, three very easy things to understand, is the power of God's love. The power of God's love and its effect on those He has redeemed. Let me read verses 1 through 3 again of 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. The power of God's love in verses 1 through 3 is this. The power of God's love will make us like Jesus. The power of God's love will make us like Jesus. Look, he says right at the beginning of the passage, what does he start with? In my translation anyway, if you have the NIV, they left out the word behold or see. My opinion, what do I know? They shouldn't have left it out. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. What is that word behold? It's a command. Behold, take a look, examine. Look at what the power of God's love is that it might change you by examining and looking at and feasting our eyes upon the goodness and greatness and power of the love of God. It will have an effect on us. This is something we do all the time. You might set goals and then visualize those goals. You're working hard and you're saving up for a car. Maybe you're going to print out a picture of that car and hang it on your office wall. You have a bad day at work, it, no, I'm working, I've got a goal in mind. Maybe you're saving for a house, or you're saving for a vacation, you put a picture of that beach in Mexico you want to visit, and it motivates you to, to stick with it and get after it. And God is saying here, behold the love of God, behold the kind of love that God bestows on us. The assumption that John makes about God's love is pretty significant. He makes an assumption that we would take for granted and may not think is even true. He says this, I assume that when you actually behold the love of God, it will change you. John assumes that a person who beholds the love of God will be changed. They will be, in fact, moved. Not merely emotionally. Something will happen to them that is unexplainable, that could not be done in their own strength or their own power. What is this love like? Let's read again, verse 1. What kind of love has the Father given to us? He calls us, what? You said, children. He calls us His children. He he refers to us as his sons and daughters, those who have received salvation by uh, faith in Christ. He says, you're my children. Now, what are the varying degrees in children in there? Isn't there kind of like the good kid and over here is sort of the bad kid and in the middle there's uh, most of us uh, average? 
You show up at, at family get-togethers, and everybody, you look familiar. No, he doesn't. Does he describe us differently? What does he describe everyone who is in Christ? Children. Are there any limits in the relationship that a child has with his parent? Of course, there might be in our broken and faltering relationships with our children and our parents, but we can't define this parent-child relationship the way we experienced it in our lives. He is the perfect father. There is nothing hindering a child from going into the presence of this father because he is saying, behold my love. He says, I am calling you my children even now. What do you need to do in your life to be called a child of God? Merely trust Jesus, and that is an unalterable, permanent reality about you. You don't become more of a child of God in your life. Once you are in Christ, you are a child of God. That is an unchanging reality, not uh, requiring your faithfulness to hold it, but Christ's faithfulness to hold it, and He is permanently faithful. Not only does he call us his children now, he says in time, even though we are his children now, on the day he appears, we will be like Christ. Look with me at verse 2. We are God's children now. That's true of us now. But there's something in, in, in our experience with God that has not yet occurred. When Jesus appears, we will be like Christ. Now, we won't be Jesus, but we will be like Him. How righteous will we be? Like Christ. We are righteous in that way now, but we don't experience it so much. We will be like Christ. In that moment, we will experience a transformation where in that moment we become like Jesus. So what does God want from us? What does God expect from us when He bestows upon us and asks us to examine and behold and soak in His love? What does He uh, expect us to do? Work our tail off? Maybe get some old-time religion? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus uh, even repeats these words over in uh, Matthew, excuse me, Matthew 22, verses 35. A lawyer came up to him and, and asked the teacher, this is Matthew 22, verse 35, and he said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the great one is, the second one I should say is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. What does God see as an expected or a normal response to him making us his children, despite the fact that we were owned by sin and death? I love you, Lord. I am your man forever. I I want your love to fill me that I might give it back to you.
the power of God's love will make us like Jesus on that day. We will immediately become like Christ in the ways we aren't today. But in this day, we become like Christ as God moves in us, and we behold His love, and we become more and more like Jesus in that we love the Father more and more and more. The power of God's love will make us like Jesus and not to move us, but it should not move us to merely religious obligation. I love God, so I should attend church more. I love God, so I should force myself to read the Bible more. I love God, so I should love my enemies more. And these are all good things. I'm not saying these things should not be done. But if we're merely doing them from a sense of obligation and not out of a sense of affection for God who has saved us, we've completely missed the point. The power of God's love should move in us to such a degree when we experience the power of God's love, we are moved and motivated by devotion to the one who has saved us. Look with me at verse 3 of 1 John chapter 3. This is how John expresses this devotion that is moved by the love of God. Everyone who thus hopes... That is, everyone who has beheld the love of God, has examined the love of God, has tasted it and seen that He is good, purifies himself as God is pure. He says, listen, if God's love moving in us will move us towards saying, you know what, I want to be like Him. God has moved in me and I have beheld His love and I have received His grace and I want my life to be pure like His life is pure. What John here is trying to contend against is an error that had cropped up in this church he was writing to. A number of people in the church had decided that God is loving, and so therefore he is unconcerned about sin. A number of people in the church had decided, listen, one day we're going to go to heaven and we're going to be made new and everything's going to be fine and dandy. You know what? I don't think God is that concerned about how we live our life here. Eat, drink, and be merry because one day we'll be in heaven. And this is the error that John is writing against. And unlike what most of us would do is we would write a sternly worded letter about what they need to do and don't do, he does something amazing. He writes to them a, a powerful letter about the love of God. The biggest issue he has with this church is not that they're doing a bunch of things that are naughty. He says the biggest thing that he has a problem with is they clearly, by their actions, have completely missed the love of God. And John sees this as a greater tragedy than the fact that a bunch of sinners were sinning. Oh, that was loud, sorry. (laughs) He was concerned. He said, you've missed something. You haven't seen it. If you would have seen the love of God, if the love of God had hit you like it hit me, you would say to yourself, no, 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 there's no way God is okay with my sin. I want so badly to live my life purified the way He is purified, my my love and devotion for this one who has saved me from my moment of death. I want to live in a manner that's consistent with who He is. John just sees these things as one equals the other. If we have beheld the love of God, we will be moved in our heart out of love to purify our life, to see God change us that we might live according to His ways. He does not do the reverse, which which is this, live a good, clean life so God might love you. He never does that. 
because that's not possible. He says, behold the love of God that your life might be lived according to his ways. Let me ask you this question before we go on to the next section here. What's the biggest way to help somebody overcome their sinful habits? I know you all have friends who have sinful habits, so think about them, think about their issues. You've got to know none of us, obviously. We're good. What's the biggest thing we need to do to help our buddy get over their sinful habits? This is something John does that we, we don't normally do. What have they missed? Well, they don't have good discipline. They have bad upbringing. They just have bad character. Do you know what they really need, according to John here? They need to behold the love of God. The problem is they were presented with a meal with the love of God, and they settled for saltine crackers. I know saltine crackers are good when you're hungry, but when you're presented with a steak, do you want the saltine crackers? And these, they've decided, uh, I'm going to settle for something less. What we tend to do is go and berate people. You really shouldn't be eating saltine crackers. Good Christians. I don't know why we talk that way when we do this. Good Christians. <laughs> Have you ever thought that maybe they just need to experience in a new and fresh way that God loves the heck out of them? Do you really think God's love is so impotent that they could experience it and still hold on to their other things? Why do we doubt His love so much? What we need to experience purification in our lives is not merely more rules to follow. What we need is to experience from one another a greater awareness, a greater flooding of the love of God. Let me show you how. What is God's greatest act of love to us? He sent Jesus. Look with me at verses 4, 5, and 6 of 1 John 3. I'm going to read them again. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 5, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. You know, verse 5, look at it again. You know that He appeared in order to do what? Make sure we understood how to behave around Him. No. What does it say? Take away our sin. God, as an act of love, sends Jesus with the greatest act of rescue and redemption and humiliation to take away our sins. The power of God's love compelled Him to send Jesus. The power of God's love compelled Him to send Jesus. He appeared, that is Jesus, as an immediate response of God to His love. God says, I love them. How do I express this love? What should I come up with? Send Jesus. That's the only way to express the immensity and enormity of my love. And why was Jesus sent as an expression of God's love? To take away our sins in spite of the fact that Jesus had no sin. What is God's love like? 
It is so enormous that He sends God Himself, Jesus, to come here in sinless perfection to remove the sin from those who have done nothing other than sin. The one who has never sinned comes as an act of love on behalf of God Himself to remove sin from those of us who have done nothing else. This is what the Apostle Paul says about this over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's down in verse 21. This is what Paul says in regard to God's work. There's a verse you're familiar with, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. He never committed sin, ever. But He made Him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, He became sin. Not a sinner, not one who commits sin, but He has received on Himself our sin. On the cross, He was the adulterer. We were righteous. He was the thief. Amazingly, this just occurs to me, so this is dangerous. So He's nailed between two thieves. When they all died, two thieves had still died. Jesus, the other thief, and the redeemed one. Because that one thief turned to him, and he wasn't a thief anymore. Jesus became sin. We are righteous. You are not defined by what you do. You are defined by who Christ is. And why would God do that? Is he just bored, doesn't have anything to do this weekend? No, he loves us. He is that crazy in love with us. He said, I just love you. I just want to make you righteous. And Jesus can take your sin. And because he's perfect, he can atone for it, be raised from the dead, and be righteous. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul talks a little bit about this. And he wants us to understand how this works in the life of the Christian. I'm actually read six verses and, and stay with me as I read. This is Romans 6, verses 1 through 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's what you guys were all asking. Jesus becomes sin for us so we can do whatever we want, right? He says this, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that Jesus as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
Paul says we need to reckon our sinful self crucified with Christ with the mind towards living in the love of God that we wouldn't simply appeal to our flesh, but we would reckon our flesh dead. He says now, because God loves us, we can say to ourselves, God loves me. I want to live according to His ways because my old ways are dead now. Again, we are compelled and moved by the work of Christ and the love of God to reveal His salvation to us in Jesus. So, John tells us, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. In verse 6, he says, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. So the question you're asking yourself as a Christian, am I supposed to no longer sin? Let's look what he says at 1 John 1.8 instead of just arguing amongst ourselves. He says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John has already told us earlier in 1 John, if you say you're without a sin, uh, you're a liar. So we know he's not saying that. He, we know he's not immediately telling us, if you've experienced the love of God, therefore you will experience the rest of your life without sin. We know he's saying, an honest person who takes a good, good hard look at their own heart will say, uh, I got stuff to confess. I got to repent again. But what he is telling us here is he says, one who has beheld the love of God will have their heart moved, that they will want their sinful life behind them, not in front of them. It's not, a, it's not saying everything's okay, I can live however I want. It's a heart moved that's going to say, I want to live in a, li a life that's consistent with the love of God, not consistent with my love of self. I know that until Jesus shows up, that's going to be an up and down battle. But until that day, I want to be in it. I want to love God by seeking to live my life in the manner in which God would have me live. And John is saying, if in our heart we have no desire to live consistent with the way that God would have us live, he's saying, you haven't beheld the love of God. You don't know how precarious your life is. If you have no, no desire to see sin eradicated and the love of God fill its spot, he's saying you need to take a look at your life because one who has beheld the love of God will seek to walk in purity, knowing full well they will not live in perfection yet until Christ is revealed. So yes, we sin, but to love Jesus and to behold the love of God is to be compelled to not sin. To love Jesus, to behold the love of God, is to be compelled to live for Christ the way God was compelled to send Jesus because of His love for us. So the error that John was writing against, again, was he had people within this church that he was writing to that said, listen, we can keep on sinning because, because my sinful life is in fact compatible with the love of Jesus. They might make this argument. Jesus came to die for sinners, of whom I am the worst, and I plan on set, setting a personal record in that regard. He wants to forgive sinners, I'll go for it. And John is saying, you've completely misunderstood what God is up to here. He is not seeking to make a way for sinners to sin. He is seeking to redeem sinners that we might not anymore, knowing full well that the end of that sin in our life will not occur until He returns 
We cannot in any way set in our minds that a sinful life is somehow compatible with the life of Christ, with the love of Jesus and the love of God in us. God has now, by the work of Christ, made us righteous, but we are not yet uh, fully changed yet. I don't know if you've noticed that. We're not perfect yet. I have another verse I want you to look at, Galatians 4, verse 19. What is the goal of experiencing and beholding the love of God? What is the goal of experiencing and beholding the love of God? So you might think about it before you read the passage. Maybe you already know it. What is the goal of beholding and knowing the love of God? We might have a number of goals we have in experiencing the love of God. We might want comfort in a life that is stressful and painful. We might want strength when we feel weak. We might want to set aside shame and guilt. I got no problem with any of these things. We might want just to live a good moral life. You know what? A better way to live is moral than, than not moral. And so the goal of the love of God is to live a good life. Many of us maybe have been raised in the church. Maybe we don't know much else. We say the goal of the experience of the love of God is to kind of keep things going. It seems like a good deal. Here's the goal of the love of God for us in verse 19. My little children, verse 19 of Galatians 4. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. My little children, Paul says regarding the church in Galatia, I am again in anguish for you because you have beheld and tasted that God's love is good and the goal of that love is to make you like Jesus. The goal of the movement of the love of God in our heart is that we might be conformed into the image of Christ. This is not what would Jesus do. This is make me like Jesus. Awake, asleep, tired, refreshed. Make me like Jesus. Make me like Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't know how many years there are in a, in a year. Years there are in a year? That too. I think there's one year in a year. You're welcome. Every single day of our life, when we wake up, God pours His love into us with one goal and one hope, that we would be like Jesus. And we wake up, our feet hit the floor, we have a lot of goals, and our goals in relation to our relationship with God are probably not quite be like Jesus. Some of us, the goals, we lower the bar just a touch. Help me not to kill my coworker today. Hey, that's like Jesus. I guess take a win, right? You know? He just simply wants us in every moment, in every thought, not merely the external, but what's actually going on in the recesses of our heart to make us like Jesus. Let me be, I got to be honest with you. It's hard for me not to be honest. Hard for me not to be. Anyway, I find this at times terribly annoying. I mean, it's for one thing to tell me how good Christians are supposed to behave. I mean, that's, I mean that's, a, that's a big deal right there. I'm not that good at that to begin with. But I find that God in my life, He sits in my heart 
And he looks at these things that nobody else knows about. He says, um, hey, Greg, we got this little situation over here. And I say, listen, we're fine. Right? I, I mean, no, we're good. We got it all together. It's fine. He says, no, you're motivated by something. Don't worry about my motivations. You mind your own business. Jesus, as king of the universe, is not used to minding his own business. He wants every nook and cranny and every recess of the, of the storehouse of our heart to be submitted to and conformed to what he's like. And guess what? As much as we kick and scream against this because we're not home yet, it's the best thing for us. He only does it because it saves us from ourselves. But the power of God's love compelled him to send Jesus to us that we might taste and see God is good because he saved us from our sin and now he wants to make us like Jesus, Christ formed in us. All right, bit of review. The power of God's love will make us like Jesus, verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 6. The power of God's love compelled God to send Jesus. And finally, let's look at verses 7 through 10. Let me read them again just to remind us of what they said. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. I mean, what are you really thinking, John? Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this is it, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The power of God's love, here this final section, the power of God's love helps us love like Jesus. Very simple thing to understand about this section of Scripture. Sin does not equal love. Sin is not love. You cannot love by sinning. All sin is against someone. There is no such thing as a private, personal sin. All sin is against God first and foremost, but I would suggest all sin, whether anyone else knows about it or not, is against someone else. All sin, in fact, is not an expression of love in any way. All sin is an expression of hatred of others to the expense of my own desires. So the power of God helps us to love like Jesus, and that has an effect on our view of how we act and how we view others. If all sin is, in fact, not an act of love, and the opposite, all righteousness is an act of love. All righteousness is an act of love towards God and, in fact, toward someone else. We've looked at this several weeks ago, and so we're not going to go into it in depth, but if you go to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, you will discover that none of the fruit of the Spirit can be done without somebody else in the room. You can't do the fruit of the Spirit on your own. They're all expressions of God's love in the midst of relationship in the body of Christ. All righteousness is an expression of love both to God and others. 
And, and we can say it this way. We can summarize where John is going this way. He says, behold, look at the love of God. I mean, really take a look at it. It's unbelievable. I want you then to take God's love, which is so immense, so enormous, so unbelievable, and I want you to be filled up with the love of God. I want you to, to examine it, to experience, and be filled up with the love of God, that every nook and cranny of our being is filled with and experiences the love of God that never ends. Then what I want you to understand, since that love never ends, I want that love to come bursting out of your seams, if you have seams, and I want it to, I want it to hit all the people around you. I want you to be filled with this love of God, behold this love of God, and for that love of God then to be expressed to all the people around you. And what do we call that when that process happens? God fills us with love, His love fills us, and so that love then goes into the people around us. What do we call that? Righteousness. That us, is us doing deeds, it's us doing things as an expression, not of our altruism and our generosity, as an expression of God who is just that loving. We love others, and that's called a righteousness. And he says this in verse 8 in very stark black and white terms, so to speak, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. What he means by practice of sinning is not somebody struggling with sin. Some of us in this room, by some of us, I just mean people in the chairs, we struggle with sin. And we even what's funny is when I say that, you thought of it, didn't you? Man, God, man I wish that was, so I could get rid of that. See, what he's talking about here is not people who struggle with sin. The problem with these folks is they don't struggle with it at all. It's not a struggle. They don't, they don't see a problem with it. Hey, I can keep on sinning. Jesus loves me. We're good to go. And, and John is saying whoever practices sin in this mindset that says there's nothing wrong with it is in fact not doing the purposes of God, but is in fact doing the purposes of Satan. Because that is what the devil has been doing from the beginning, saying sin is okay, you can still be good with God as long as you're sinning, that's not a big deal. Sin is not a problem with God, I mean, He's going to take care of it, but listen, at the end of the day, it's not a big deal. I don't know if you remember this, back in Genesis 3, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall, shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Let me read it correctly. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And she said, you know, we can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. It's not, a, it's not as a big deal as you're making it out to be. No, don't worry about it. In fact, when you eat it, you're going to know a bunch of stuff you didn't know before. At the end of the day, you know, God will take care of it. Yeah, it's not as a big deal. And in fact, there's some benefit to it. And they take and they eat. And John says this back in, in verse 9. He says, listen, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one says, it's not a big deal. I'm not going to die. Because God's seed abide in us, abides in us. God has rebirthed us. He has, we are born again, and now we have God in us by the presence 
of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying now we have the presence of Christ in us by the presence of a spirit, and we now see sin the way Christ sees sin, and we cannot endure it the way the devil would have us do. In fact, this was God's attitude about sin in Genesis 3.14. He says this, serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put your enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise your head and he shall bruise his heel. This is a, prefer this. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's Christ's attitude to uh, the perspective of, devil on, of the devil on sin? Oh, crush that guy's head. That's the attitude of one who is filled with the presence of Christ by His Spirit. As we see sin and we quickly say, with the presence of Christ in us, having experienced the love of God, I want that thing dead. There is nothing good about it. It is a big deal. I want it dead and I want it dead yesterday. Jesus is the devil destroyer. On the cross, the devil lost. When he walked out of the grave, death was over. Jesus destroyed all the works of the devil, and now by his Spirit, Jesus fills us. And the question is, do we want to destroy the works of the devil too or not? Because one filled with with the presence of Christ will not tolerate the presence of sin because we love God that much, because God has loved us that much. All right, verse 10, as we prepare to close. By this it is evident who are the children of God. That is this, those who have tasted that God's love, have been filled with God's love, and have the presence of Christ. We are moved by God, this is what it says, uh, to not practice righteousness. Maybe I should read it correctly. English isn't my first language, you know that. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Those who practice unrighteousness, he is saying, and by practice righteousness, this is a mindset that says unrighteousness is okay and compatible with a life of Christ. He's saying, listen, if, you've, if that's your mindset, you haven't tasted the love of God. He's not talking about those who struggle with overcoming sin. He's talking about those who say sin's good. It's not a big deal. Then he adds this on. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. When we love like Jesus, we see sin for what it really is. We see, when we see his grace for what it really is in the midst of our sin, we receive his love and his grace. When we've seen the destructive nature of our sin and the overwhelming response of God in grace and love for our sin, we receive his love, and then he says, by nature, uh, we love our brothers and sisters. What could we possibly have against a brother or sister if we have seen what God has done in regard to our own sin. When we see the degree and extent of what God has given us grace for, what could we possibly hold against a brother and sister? There's nothing, because we have received the grace and love of God. All right, let's, uh, let me just review and then a couple of things by way of closing. The power of God's love will make us like Jesus. The power of God's love compels us compels him to send Jesus, and the power of God's love helps us love like Jesus.
When we think about Him making us like Jesus, just a couple of things. When Christ appears, we will be like Christ. Just like that. Won't that be awesome? When Christ appears, we'll be like Christ. Boom. So the question is, where do you place your hope? Where do you place your hope of being like Christ? Where do you place your hope for being like Christ? Is it in your good deeds? Do you place your hope in your religious works? Do you place your hope in your self-discipline? Are these things all going to make us like Christ? No, we place our hope in the grace and love of God Himself. We place our hope in God, knowing that He will one day finish the job. Let's think of it this way, just very quickly. You're going to spend your whole life resting in the grace of God that he might conform you to Jesus. And then one day, you're going to be in the presence of Jesus, and just like that, the job is done. Which part of that was most of the work? The part you did is this much. That's your life. We're going to become this much like Jesus. There's not very much room in there. And then the day Jesus appears, God does the rest. So I think maybe we can simmer down a little bit and just rest in the grace of God. I think he's got it handled. Doesn't mean we take sin lightly. Doesn't mean we take the love of God lightly. But I'm convinced to the degree we experience the grace and love of God filling up our hearts, knowing how tremendous he is for doing all of the work for us, that love will roll out of our lives in righteousness and love for others. The power of God's love will make us like Jesus. God does the work. The power of God's love compels him to send Jesus in fact, God's love was such that He wanted to take away our sin. We understand then that God didn't paint Himself in the corner when He created the world and we sinned. God's love was such He wanted to take away our sin. That's what He's into. So the question is, how do you know that God loves you? Sitting where you are today, sitting wherever you might be and however you walked in here, how do you know that God loves you? Is it because God has blessed you in your life? You have good people or good things in your life that you enjoy? Is it blessing? Is it because you have happiness that you know God loves you? Is it because you got a God loves you vibe? I don't even know what that means. You got a kind of vibe this morning? Yeah, God loves me. I think he's cool. The way we know God loves us is this. He took away our sin. There is no more clear or compelling way for God to say, I love you, I will take away your sin, and actually I wanted to, because that's what I'm into. The way we know that God loves us is He takes away our sin by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Anyone who trusts Christ for forgiveness of sin because He died on the cross and rose again has His sin washed away because God just simply loves us. power of God helps us Love like Jesus. Let me remind you of what I said earlier, and I don't know if you believe me or not, but all sin is against somebody. Secret, public, it doesn't matter. All sin is against God, but also someone else that you know. All righteousness is love toward somebody. All works of God, of righteousness in and through us, are expressed in love toward those around us. So the question is, knowing that, what is it like for us to be righteous? 
How do we normally categorize what it means to be righteous in Christ? We think of things like, I want to be more good than bad. Some of us think this way, what it's like to be righteous is to not get caught. My righteousness is not determined by its actual righteousness, it's my perceived righteousness. That's more true for many of us than we want to admit. What's it like to be righteous? I do sin, but I only do PG-13 sins. I don't do anything really bad, nothing that would put me in jail. So therefore, I'm righteous. That's the old, what I call the Hitler argument for morality. I'm moral as long as I'm more moral than Hitler. Congratulations, I guess. Good for you. What is it like to be righteous? In fact, Jesus says it different. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Have it fill you that you might love your neighbor. There's righteousness. Not to love your neighbor to get God to love you, but to sit back and finally get off our high horse and say, God loves me. It hasn't changed. He just fills us up, pours it up, pours out. We love other people. It starts to go down a little bit, and God says, oh, man, I'm fresh out. No, it never ends. What's it like to be righteous, to love God with all of our heart? If there's one thing you can take away from today, if there's one thing we need to repent of, is the fact we do not love God. The power of God's love will make us like Jesus. The power of God's love compelled Him to send Jesus, and the power of God's love helps us love like Jesus.